Well, good morning. Good morning. Andrea was just telling me, this is the hardest part is getting people back together, stop talking and all that. And I said, you know, it was the same as our church in China when we would have a kind of a, a greeting time in the midst of our service there, getting people back together and all of that is like, oh, forget it. Let's just go out to lunch together. And, you know, that's the way it is. So anyway, it is great to be here. Uh, Sue and I have been looking forward to these next three months or so that we will be with you and such, uh, such a wonderful opportunity for us. I have to say, though, probably like a lot of you, I've been looking down on that front row thinking, I miss Stuart and Bronwyn. I really do. They are such dear friends of us. And um, so, but I'm grateful for the opportunity that they have. So I'm, I commend you as a church uh, for allowing them this opportunity and for sending them off as you have, because it is a it is a sign of your devotion to them. It's a sign of your devotion to God. It is a sign of your commitment to their long-term spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical health, and the health of this congregation to give them such an opportunity. So uh, be praying for them during this time. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Mark, and uh, so you'll want to turn there. We'll be looking at the next passage there uh, in our time this morning. But before we do that, let me pray for us, and then we will open the word and see what God has to speak to each of us. Father, we thank you for your word, for the way you have spoken and the way you continue to speak. And we thank you for the presence of your spirit and the ministry of your Holy Spirit who enables us to receive and to understand what you have to say to us. Help us to open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive what you have. Guide us into truth, we pray. And help us to respond we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking before we jump into the passage that we will be looking at today, um, some general thoughts as we approach studying the Gospels, not just the Gospel of Mark, but really any of the Gospels uh, that are included in the New Testament Whenever I look at the Gospels, there are always three questions in my mind that I approach any passage with, any verse, any section, or even the Gospel as a whole. There are always three questions that I ask myself as I'm looking into a passage. And I want to think about these three questions because they will come up again and again as we continue our series in, in this Gospel of Mark. The first question is this. What is this passage teaching me about Jesus, about the person of Jesus Christ? What is this passage telling me about him as a person? I know that seems like such a basic question, but really it is, in many ways, the most important of all the questions, because that 
after all, really is the purpose of each of the Gospels. These are narratives that are teachings about about Jesus Christ. In fact, the writers tell us that this is their intent as, as as they are writing these Gospels. We see that right here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, as Mark begins in in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's telling us this is a Gospel, and the subject matter is Jesus himself. Notice, as we look in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John tells us basically the same thing. He says, Jesus did many other signs in in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So not only is what I have written here to tell you who Jesus is, but what is your appropriate response to that, that you would believe that he is the Christ, the, the, the Son of the living God? Luke tells us about the the content of his gospel, actually not in Luke, but in Acts chapter 1, which is the sequel to his his gospel. He says in Acts 1.1, the first book, and that is his reference to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. So when we read the Gospels, we we have to come at them with this this very important question that the authors intend for us to ask. What is this passage? What is this verse? What is this section? What is the Gospel as a whole teaching me about the person of Jesus Christ? The second question that, that I always ask as I come to any of the Gospels is, is this, what is Jesus teaching me about the kingdom? Not only what is the passage teaching me about Jesus, but what is Jesus teaching me about the kingdom? As we, as we observe Jesus, as we listen to his teaching, we soon discover that there is one primary focus to his message. And that is the kingdom of God, or as it is sometimes called, the kingdom of heaven. We're in Acts chapter 1, Look at verse 3. Luke says, He presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. This was the substance of his message. He is, he is teaching them about the kingdom of God. We see the same thought presented in all of the other Gospels. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The same thing in Mark chapter 4, verse 11, we see that the parables describe for us the secret of the kingdom of God. When we get into Matthew's gospel, especially Matthew chapter 13, we see a number of parables, each one of them saying something like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom is like. But not only did did Jesus not only teach about the kingdom, 
but he demonstrates the kingdom. We see that very, very clearly, Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus not only proclaims truth about the kingdom, he describes the kingdom, he teaches about the kingdom, but he also demonstrates the kingdom through the the healing of, of these people. There is proclamation, there is healing, there is deliverance from, from demons. There is intellectual understanding, spiritual understanding, physical healing, emotional healing, deliverance from oppressing spirits. All of this, we must understand, is a demonstration of the kingdom of God, not only in words, but in his actions. So every time you read a passage, don't just pay attention to what Jesus is saying, but pay attention to his actions, because his actions are in some way demonstrating, teaching us something about the kingdom of God. There's a third question we need to ask of every passage. Whether this this statement is overt or whether it is implied, it is woven throughout the text as well. And that question is, who is a true disciple? Who is a true disciple? What is the passage teaching me about Jesus? What is Jesus teaching about the kingdom? And who are those people who are in the kingdom and those people who are out of the kingdom? Who is a true follower of Jesus and a part of the kingdom? John is my favorite of all the gospel writers, and I love the way he describes the true follower of Jesus in John chapter 15. Just listen to these words. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to these words. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Who is the true follower of Jesus? He is the the friend of Jesus, the one who loves as Jesus has loved, the the one who lays down his life for other people. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus, Jesus says, if I can find it, I'm all over the place here. He says, the kingdom of God, God is at hand, repent and believe in the kingdom. The obvious implication is that the true disciple is the one who repents, who who turns away from sin and believes the message of the gospel. I love the the way Stuart is describing this in our study of Mark, that, that we walk on earth as we are known in heaven. That is a true disciple. 
who repents, believes, and lives out a life that is consistent with this discipleship, that we are walking on earth as we are known by God in heaven. That is a true disciple. And so today we come to the end of Mark chapter 1, and we see each of these questions being asked and answered throughout the text. At the heart of this passage, I think Mark is emphasizing one thing about Jesus, and that is his kingdom authority. He is emphasizing the kingdom authority of Jesus. We see that in the, in the passages preceding what we are going to look at this morning. We see verse 11, that, that there is this voice from heaven, the voice of God, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That is, that is a statement of authority, you are my son. His identity is the son of the father, the son of the living God. And I am pleased in you. This is a statement of Jesus' authority because of his relationship to, to the Father. Verse 22, Jesus' teaching, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. His authority as opposed to the other religious leaders of the day. Mark is making a statement. Jesus' authority is different from the, the authority of the scribes here. Verse 27, they were amazed at, and they questioned among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Not only is his teaching with authority, but Jesus has authority over other spiritual powers. The demons even pay attention and recognize the authority of Jesus. I want to approach the passage that we're going to look at today a little differently, a little bit out of order, but I think it'll make sense as we go through the, the flow of the, the, the passage here, beginning at, at verse 29. Let me read the whole thing, and then we'll look at the, the parts of it. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 29, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they, took, they told him about her. And he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. 
Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go you show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. I think we have to see that verse 29 is is a continuation of the, the previous section that, that has already, we've already looked at here. There are two things about this healing that I want to um, point out. First, we see that this healing, the healing of, of, of Peter's mother-in-law, occurs on the Sabbath. It's not right there in verse 29, but we see that be, in, the, in the previous section Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And so that section is right there. And then verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So this is a continuation of what has just previously happened, which would have been troubling, healing on the Sabbath. But notice, secondly, verse, verse 31, he came and took her, note that, by the hand and lifted her up. Jesus touches a sick woman on the Sabbath. Two problems. That wouldn't have happened. That shouldn't have happened. That makes Jesus unclean, and he's working on the Sabbath. Yet notice this. Mark does not emphasize the controversial aspects of this ministry because I think he is trying to make another point here. He is not emphasizing the controversy of the healing, though there are controversial elements in it. We don't see that this winds up in a dispute, as sometimes it does, because he's trying to emphasize something else. His point, rather, is to emphasize the spreading of the power of the kingdom. Notice verse 29 to 31. It is a very simple healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And obviously, word is spreading throughout the area in verse 32. Now people hear about this healing, and so they bring to him all who are sick and who are oppressed by demons, demons and Jesus heals them, continues to heal. Mark describes in these verses a broad range of illnesses, and, and Jesus heals each one. There are physical illnesses, there are emotional illnesses, there are spiritual, there's spiritual oppression. But we have to notice that this happens on the Sabbath. But Mark doesn't emphasize the controversy. He, Jesus had to be aware of it, but it tells us, I think, something very important about the person of Jesus. Jesus is demonstrating his kingdom authority over every type of sickness, over every type of oppression, 
and his compassion for the afflicted is greater than the legalism of the law. Jesus' casting out of the demons is, is an undeniable sign that, that the kingdom of God has come and Satan's realm is being routed. That he is invading and he is redeeming brokenness of every type. Spiritual brokenness, physical brokenness. We have to see at points even relational brokenness. Jesus is healing every single one of these, and the kingdom of God is pressing into the broken places of this world. That is what Mark wants us to see there, not the controversies, but Jesus is going to press his kingdom authority into every single one of these places. And that's why Mark emphasizes that rather than the other things that we might get distracted about. We could so easily focus on the controversies in the story, but I don't think that's what Mark wants us to see here. Jesus heals everybody who comes to him, and Mark emphasizes his compassion for the sick and not the controversy of the law. He doesn't turn anyone away. Jesus is pressing his kingdom authority over disease, over demons, and he is healing. He is restoring. He is redeeming. Similarly, when we come to verses 40 through 45, so we're going to jump to the end of the chapter, we find a second healing. This time we find a man afflicted with leprosy who, who comes to Jesus to be healed. And we look at Jesus' response, and look at verse 41. My version says he was moved with pity. If you have the NIV, it says that Jesus was indignant. The actual Greek word describes a very deep emotion that literally comes from the bowels. Most translations emphasize the pity or the compassion of, of Jesus, and others, others translate it as indignation or, or, or anger. But I think that the point that Mark is making is that there is a very deep, emotional, even a visceral response as Jesus is moved when this man with leprosy comes to him. He is, he is perhaps moved with pity, for the man. He is probably moved with indignation because as he looks at the ravages of this disease, he realizes this is not the world as I created it. This is not what I intended for people to live with. This is not the way things are supposed to be. There are times I think all of us understand that kind of, that kind of feeling. I remember uh, just over a year ago when my mother passed away, and Bronwyn said something to me one day. She said, this is the place where joy and sorrow meet. Because my mother was a believer. I knew that she's with Jesus. Joy and sorrow in one event. And I think that's what we see here. We can feel both of those things at the same time, can't we? Joy that my mother is released 
from the ravages that she had lived with of watching her fade away from us for years. She'd lived with disease that took her very, very slowly. There's joy that she is released from that. Sorrow, yes, we grieve, but not those without, like those without hope. We can feel that, can't we? We can feel pity and indignation all at the same time. But what I think we want to emphasize here is that Jesus feels the depth of the pain. He feels the emotion. He enters into the man's situation, not just looking at it saying, oh, you have leprosy, let me heal you, intellectual understanding. No, he feels it. We read in in other Gospels where Jesus looks at the people and he is moved with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. He looks over the city and he weeps. That's exactly how Mark wants us to see this. He is moved with this deep, visceral emotion. And it's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 can say that he can sympathize with you and with me in every respect. Why? Because he has entered into this world of brokenness and pain. When you are sitting in a place of difficulty, anxiety, anguish, dare to go to Hebrews 4 and and picture Jesus sitting with you and feeling the pain that you are going through. Feeling the pain of brokenness and saying, yes, I understand, I get it, I have been there. I know what it's like for your family not to understand. Guess what? My brothers thought I was crazy. I know what it's like to feel pain. I know what it's like to have a friend turn against you. I've been there. And Jesus is feeling that sense of pity and sympathy, empathy entering into the experience of this this leper. I don't know if you've ever seen someone with leprosy. It is a, it's a hideous, highly, highly contagious disease. So contagious, in fact, that people with leprosy are separated from the rest of society, not just in biblical times, but even today. They are separated from society. To touch such a person would not only put you at great risk to contract the disease, but it would also render you unclean yourself. Physical risk and societal risk. But Jesus' compassion overrules the rules of society. I remember my very first visit to a leprosy village. Go ahead and show the pictures. Here's a woman who had lived with leprosy for 20 years. You can see her foot is almost gone. There's hardly anything left of it. If you could see her hand, you would see that her fingers are just little stubs. They're gone. Eroded away by the the ravages of the disease. Her nose is partly gone. 
because that's where leprosy affects a person, the extremities of the bodies, the fingers, the toes, the feet, the nose, the eyes. You can no longer blink. You lose the ability to blink your eyes. And this is my best friend, Doug. But I want you to focus on one thing there. The ugliness of the disease, yes. But notice, bare hands daring to touch the disease. Unheard of in this village, these people were out a long ways from the nearest town. They lived separated from society. Hadn't been in, this woman hadn't been in a town in over 20 years. And whatever provisions they had were dropped off by people who left them there and then they would leave. A group of about four or five people living in this little leprosy village. All of them, like this woman, shunned from society. And here's my friend, just like Jesus touching her. Jesus touched the man with bare hands and said, I will be clean. There is something about the power of human touch for an untouchable. There is power in that kind of touch when somebody who has been shunned by society is suddenly enfolded in. Touch them. Talk to them. Homeless people have a name. They're not just homeless people. Immigrants have a name. Do we know what their names are? Dare to touch the people that society would say, oh, I would rather not see you. I would rather put you away. And here is Jesus recognizing the worth of every person, even those we would like to pretend don't exist. But notice that Jesus tells the man to go and show himself to the priest and to fulfill the requirements of the law. I think there's something important in this. You see, in Jewish tradition, the priest could declare that somebody was clean or unclean, but only God could heal. So here is Jesus displaying his kingdom authority even over the priests, over the scribes, over the Pharisees, that he has an authority over the unclean spirits and an, an authority over the demons and authority over the scribes and authority over the, 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 the Pharisees and authority over the priests and authority over the law. His kingdom authority is far beyond the authority of the other leaders of Jewish society. There's a very important verse in the middle of here that, that we jumped past, verse 35, that I believe shows us the source of Jesus' authority. Verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
so easy to read past this and to, to focus on the miracles, to focus on the more dramatic parts of the, of, the, of the story and even the controversies. But I want to suggest, without verse 35, none of this is possible. Jesus retreated to a desolate place. It's the same word we've, we see in verse 3 that is translated wilderness. Occupies such a small verse in the account, but, but I think that we have to see that this is the place where Jesus' authority, where Jesus' strength, and where Jesus' power are replenished through his intimacy with the Father. In the Gospels and in, in, in indeed so much of Scripture, the, the wilderness is a place of very deep spiritual encounter. It is a, a place of purification. It is a, a place of preparation for ministry. So when we see Jesus retreating into the wilderness for prayer, I think we gain a, a glimpse of Jesus in his truly divine nature. Some people would see this as Jesus at his at his most human place, well, of course, as a human, he needs to have that kind of intimacy with God, and, 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 and um, it's, a, it's a picture of his frailty, but, but I think that we see Jesus here as the second member of the Trinity. What do we see in Romans chapter 8? We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. We see that the language of prayer is the language of the Trinity. This is what Jesus' present ministry is. This is what the Spirit's present ministry is. So when we see Jesus at prayer, we see him exercising his ministry as the second person of the Trinity, this ongoing ministry of, of conversation, prayer among the Trinity. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And so likewise, when you and I enter the wilderness for prayer, we discover more fully God's will. We, we learn to discern the sound of his voice. We retreat into the wilderness for prayer. It, that's the source of Jesus' power and authority, and it is no less true for each of us. We are invited into this sacred conversation. The, the wilderness of prayer is not to be avoided. It is not to be feared we should embrace it as an invitation from the Father to enter into his heart. The, the way of solitude with Jesus, I have often said, is the, is the way of preparation for ministry. Our, our methods and our motives are purified and refocused. When we gain the heart of Jesus and we learn the ways of Jesus, we learn, as Jesus did, that the only true motive for ministry is to do the will of him who sent me. In solitude, we discover that true ministry is the overflow of what Jesus is teaching me personally. That is where my power for ministry comes. It is when I sit with him and simply allow that to flow out into the lives of other people. Henry Nouwen makes the very astute observation that Christian leaders cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions about the burning issues of our time. Their leadership must be rooted in the permanent, intimate relationship with the incarnate word, Jesus. And they need to find there with him the source for their words, their advice, and their guidance. 
Through the discipline of contemplative prayer, Christian leaders have to learn again to listen to the voice of love and to find there the wisdom and the courage to address whatever issue presents itself to them. This is where we find Jesus. And this is the model that he presents for us. This is where our ministry comes from. It flows out of this intimacy with the Father in these times in the wilderness, these times in prayer. I want to notice, lastly, the, the, the people's response. Look at verses 36 and 37. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they, they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says to them, Let's go to the next towns that I can preach there also, for that's why I came. And he went out and he preached. Look at, look at verse 45. He went out and began to talk freely about it. That's the leper. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. People are, are curious. No doubt Jesus is a, is a spectacular celebrity by now. But I think there's a tension in this response that we have to pay attention to. The, the people, of course, are attracted to him because of these, these healings, but, but look at what Jesus says in verse 38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. It's an interesting tension here. The people are responding one way, but Jesus states his very clear purpose as something very, very different. The more than anything, people are coming to Jesus with a desire for healing, fully aware of their, their pain and their limitation, and they want relief. Of course they want relief. It's very human to want relief. They want to be released from their discomfort, their, their disability, the inconvenience of, of illness. Jesus demonstrates he is able to heal, yes, but there is a much greater question here that Mark wants us to wrestle with, and that is, what is Jesus' ultimate purpose? He says, I didn't come just to come and heal people. What is my purpose? My purpose is something very different. So often today, people ask questions like, can Jesus really heal? Does God still heal? What does Jesus have to offer? But Jesus wants us to ask another question, and that is, what is his purpose? What does he have to give? I remember years ago when I was in a long, dark night of the soul, I often prayed for relief. Jesus answered this prayer, give me relief from the suffering that I am going through. Four years of spiritual, dark, night, wilderness. And one day as I was praying, Jesus, so gently as he is in his grace, gently rebuked me and says, do you don't, don't just seek relief from this. Seek me. Don't just seek relief. Don't just seek the answer to the question. Don't just seek the thing that is going to bring you out of this season. No, I want you to seek me. Seek my face. 
What are we praying for here in our deepest times of prayer? Our motives are purified and we discover that I think we ask for too little. I want relief. And Jesus says, you know what? I have something much greater to give you. I'm offering you the kingdom. I'm offering you this kingdom power, this kingdom authority. We simply want relief from suffering. And Jesus says, I didn't come just to heal and give people relief. I came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, which is much bigger than your physical illness. I think too often we come to Scripture with our own questions, our own agenda, driven by our desires, and we become fixated on that. Can God heal? Does God heal? Why does he? Why doesn't he? Jesus says in verse 38, let's go and preach the kingdom, because that is why I came. Can we hear Jesus' mild rebuke here? You just want physical relief and healing, but I have something greater to offer you. I have come to tell you about the kingdom, to invite you into the kingdom, to to demonstrate the authority of the kingdom, to offer you a completely different life from what the world would offer. A life in God as he intended from the beginning. I think the healings and the miracles have to be seen in light of something much greater that Jesus has offered, and that is the inbreaking of the dominion of God into our human fallenness and brokenness. I had such a beautiful reminder of this just a few days ago. A dear friend of mine has been diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma and is undergoing aggressive treatment for the disease. The prognosis does not look good. But he recently wrote, just a few days ago, he said, yesterday was a wonderful day. On the one hand, my lungs are quickly being flooded again with fluid, not able to fully inflate them even in vertical position, producing anxiety. Secondly, the pulmonologist is telling me, now that you have air that needs to be removed, you're not stable anymore to be discharged. It's going to be tough. Three, the oncologist tells me, have you heard the bad news yet? Your blood test shows, and then he writes, blah, 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 blah. But, on the other hand, Jesus is so real. He is so tender, he is so merciful, so sweet, forgiving, reassuring, smiling, caring, sustaining, that Jesus, my wife, and I had incredible conversations yesterday. He showed up again, magnificent, radiant, immense. And with so much joy, I have been telling him, thank you for continuing to convert us to you. This is awesome. There is nothing better in this world than belonging by grace to his family. And all of you brothers and sisters are a part of this. And we feel honored to be a part. We feel honored to be a part of it. I am still so excited about how the Lord showed up in our hearts in the middle of the storm yesterday. It was indeed a wonderful day. As long as I have breath, I will praise you. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. Brothers and sisters, that is the kingdom of God breaking into, pressing into the despair and the brokenness that this man is feeling. Will he be healed in this lifetime? We don't know. But the assurance that I am squarely in the presence of Jesus, even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That is the kingdom of God pressing into the brokenness of this man's life. Into a humanly hopeless situation. And I think this is where our desires and Jesus' purposes are often in tension. We must always see the healing in its proper light, secondary to the invitation of life in God's kingdom. It is greater than physical healing and well-being. It is a whole new dimension of life. And that is what God has to offer. That is what Jesus has to offer. Kingdom authority in every situation of life. Let's pray. In this moment, ask the Spirit of God one question. What is your invitation to me in the midst of this? Is it an invitation to enter into the wilderness with him and to sit with the Father in prayer, to embrace the wilderness? Is it the invitation to allow Jesus to picture Jesus feeling your pain, feeling your brokenness, even feeling your joy, whatever it is you're going through. The, in, the invitation to allow him to press his kingdom authority into your life, into your situations. Open to that invitation. And let him press his kingdom into that place. Jesus, we thank you for these demonstrations of your kingdom authority. Help us to open, to receive, And allow you to move into those broken places of our lives and to press that authority in there. Help us to receive the kingdom. In Jesus' name.